We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke. Our text begins in verse 19 and goes through verse 26. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, that is Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. We are a homeschool family at my house, so one of the reasons that we homeschool is because we believe a proper education is directly connected to the God who made all things. So that um, the basis of education is that God is central. So we don't just learn subjects, we learn subjects in how they relate to God. He is in the center. For example, history. History is not just a random uh, series of events that happened, but they are the unfolding of God's providential plan for the nations. Science. Science is the study of the world God made. Math. Math demonstrates that God is a God of order. There is a reason that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and that is not consistent with a chaotic, purposeless universe. It is because God is orderly and the universe He made is structured. The subject of logic demonstrates that there is a God-given design in how we are to think. So, logic is a wonderful subject that they used to teach in public schools. They no longer teach that. We, in our home, in our homeschool curriculum, teach logic. And logic is the key to rational and correct thinking. So, God makes this universe, and there are invisible laws that structure how good arguments are made that fall in line with these invisible laws. For example, the law of non-contradiction. This is probably something you never think about. I want you to think about it for a minute. Two contradictory statements cannot be true at the same time in the same way. The floor cannot be wet and not wet at the same time using the same criteria for wetness. 
A room cannot be both dark and light at the same time in the same way. That is a, that is a law that exists that uh, keeps us in line with proper thinking. So these are laws that never change, and they are applicable anywhere you go in God's universe. So logic assumes God as its source. And part of the study of logic involves being able to spot illogical arguments. We call them logical fallacies. So just as there is a right way of thinking that is in accord with the way God has made the universe, there are many wrong ways of thinking. Logical fallacies are arguments that are invalid because of errors in reasoning. Let me give you a few examples. One logical fallacy is called the ad hoc fallacy. This is an argument that attempts to make a conclusion through improper association. So if someone said, every time we take Mary to the park, it rains, so we stop taking Mary to the park. That is a logical fallacy. It is illogical reasoning. It is making an association between two events that are unrelated. There is no causal connection between taking someone to the park and weather patterns. Another logical fallacy is called the ad hominem fallacy. It literally means in Latin, to the man. This is a fallacy where instead of using reason to uh, present an argument, you attack your opponent. I have no argument, Your Honor, but surely you're not going to listen to this defense attorney because he's an alcoholic. That is not addressing the facts of a truth claim, but it's attacking the character of the one who is presenting them. Another logical fallacy is called the fallacy of the complex question. This fallacy comes in the form of a question that inserts unproven information which is intended to trap your opponent. Have you stopped beating your wife? If the person answers yes, you say, oh, you used to beat your wife? If the person answers no, it's an admission that he beats his wife now. So there are some fallacies that are just made out of ignorance because people are not thinking logically, but this is one that attempts to trick someone into a false admission of guilt. Or there is the faulty dilemma fallacy. This one is similar, but it attempts to back someone into a corner by giving them only two options as possible answers. It assumes there are two and only two possible responses when there might be other possible responses. Will you support the fight against global warming by giving to our organization? Or do you want your grandchildren to die? That is a faulty dilemma. It assumes that if you do not give money to this organization, the human race is in peril and possibly extinction. It oversimplifies situations by pressuring the person to accept one of two available options. 
Now, as we continue in Luke chapter 20, we are going to see Jesus presented with a logical fallacy. He is given an either-or question, but it's an argument that's intended to trap him. It's not an attempt to reason with him to gain understanding, but it's to impale him on the horns of a dilemma. It's intended to catch him in his words. So I read our text already. I found that it evenly falls into three points miraculously. We are going to look first at the religious leader's intent in verses 19 and 20. Their implementation in verses 21 and 22. And their implosion in verses 23 to 26. Their intent, their implementation, and their implosion. First of all, their intent. Read with me again in Luke 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So we know from the bulk of Jesus' public ministry that he faced opposition by the religious leaders. These were men who not only wanted to discredit him, but they wanted to destroy him. Jesus spoke and taught with an authority that was a threat to their established powers, and so, because they were regularly confronted by the truth of God through the mouth of Jesus, they were condemned and their whole religious system. And they realized that they must put a stop to this. Now, prior to our text we saw last week, Jesus taught a parable that was against them. Just to review, the parable was about a landowner who owned a vineyard and he leased it out to others. And these tenants failed to provide the fruit that came from this enterprise. So they had agreed upon a certain amount of fruit to be provided to the landowner, and when he sent his servants to collect on that, they mistreated those servants. He finally sends his son, thinking they, of course, are going to listen to him, and they take him outside of the vineyard and kill him. And we saw that this is a parable about the history of Israel's leadership. So the leaders in charge did not produce the fruit that God required, and they would abuse those who God sent to them, which were the prophets, and then finally this culminated in them refusing his very own son whom they had executed. So Jesus lays out the history of Israel's failure, and even into the future how they were going to treat his greatest and final messenger, his son. And he ends this parable by shocking the audience, by saying that God was going to take the vineyard away from them and give it to others. 
which was a direct reference to God giving all of his covenant and promises to the Gentiles. Now, the people understand what this parable is about based on the way they respond. They are shocked, they are in disbelief, and they say, may it never be. And we know that they understand because if you look at verse 19, again it says, the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So it was very clear what Jesus was saying, and they are they, are, they have had about enough of this teacher. It is more than they can bear. They are ready to do whatever is necessary. And in fact, it says in verse 19, they wanted to do it that very hour. In other words, the time is up. Now is the day. This is the time we are going to do this. But there's something that's preventing them from acting upon that. And we are told it is the people. The biggest concern that these men had in this whole thing was losing their authority over the people. So to get rid of Jesus required they do it in such a way as to not turn the people against them in the process. So here they have to be very careful. They know they have to stop Jesus. The crowds are coming to hear Jesus. Many of them are His disciples. Many of them recognize him as a righteous teacher and their opposition has to be done in such a way as to not go against the crowds that's the last thing they want is for this thing to go badly and at the same time they have nothing legitimate that they can bring against Jesus they want to bring him before the authorities They've been watching, and they've been waiting, and they've been plotting on how they're going to trap him, but up to this point, they have fallen short. And Luke describes for us their intent. Verse 20, it says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they know that they must have some reason to be able to arrest him, and very importantly, they must have some reason that Rome would be interested in. While God's law supports capital punishment, the Jews were unable to carry it out on their own because they were under Roman jurisdiction. And so they could not lawfully execute anyone. So what they need is for Jesus to do something or to say something that would condemn Him in the eyes of the Romans. This is why Luke says at the end of verse 20, so as to deliver Him up to the authority and jurisdiction of The governor, that is a familiar figure we know as Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was not an afterthought that just happens to show up at the end. 
He is the one they recognize needs to give them the approval. He is the one that needs to call the shots here. And for him to get on board, they need to really make sure that Jesus does something that's offensive to Rome. So, they have to catch him in some kind of statement in the presence of witnesses to carry this out. And it says in verse 20, they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. So here is their plot in action. They've deliberated. They've discussed what they're going to do. And they have sent men secretly in there pretending that they are not against Jesus. Now, this is in three of the four Gospels, and when you put them all together, just like we saw last time, you get a fuller picture. If you want to know who the players are here that are opposing Jesus, Luke tells us in verse 19, it's the scribes and the chief priests. Matthew and Mark have the same reading, and I'll just quote from Mark 12, 13. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees, and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So you put all this together and you have have scribes, you have chief priests, you have Pharisees, and you have this group called the Herodians. This is a cohesive effort by the full spectrum of Israel's leadership to get rid of Jesus. Now, there's some irony here that, based on last week's parable, we see immediately following what Jesus taught. What did Jesus taught last time? He taught that the son of the vineyard owner was going to be cast out and killed. Right? So the tenants were the religious leaders They had persecuted the prophets over and over again. Jesus says he's going to send his son and they're going to take him out and kill him. So here are men who just heard this parable and rather than changing their course, rather than falling under the weight of conviction and realizing, wow, we're just doing the same things that the leadership has always done. We are refusing what God has said and we are killing the messengers. Rather than that, they proceed with their plan. They are hardened in their opposition to Jesus, and Him telling them a story about what is about to take place does not change their thinking. So they are, they are set in their ways. They are plotting and planning on how they're going to get the Romans on board, and this is the main issue. So their collaboration of authority against Jesus is to trap him. This is their intent. So that was point one, their intent. Secondly, we see their implementation of this plan. Verse 21, So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, And show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So this is the setup. 
the implementation of their plan. They're all in collusion with a common goal, and that is to maintain their authority and do away with any threat to their authority. And once again, we have seen many times throughout the Gospels with the religious leaders, there is a great amount of hypocrisy. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek hypocrite, which literally means to put on a mask. And it is to present yourself as being one way while you're really another way. And so what they do here is put on a mask of sincerity and flattery. All with the hopes of covering up their true intention. They don't want to confront Jesus and cause a scene. They don't want to flex their opposition to Jesus and alert Him to their uh, plan that He's in danger. And so instead they come to Him with flattery. Proverbs 27.6 says, The wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And here they lavish him with kisses in the form of words. They affirm that he teaches in accord with the truth. And yet there is some irony in the statement because they also say in verse 21, he shows no partiality. You might have a footnote. I do in my ESV. It says that the term the phrase literally means you do not receive a face meaning Jesus does not judge by a person's appearance he is not interested in outward things he gets to the heart of the issue Matthew's gospel is a little more descriptive they say teacher we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. And so these are comments to hide their actual intent, but it's ironic in the sense that they're saying, Jesus, you are concerned about the heart and not about outward appearance. And so what do they do? They change their outward appearance to cover up their sinister heart. In other words, they come with him, they come to him with flattery, and they acknowledge that he's not persuaded by flattery. Now, here is this group. They are spies, they have a plot, they are carrying out their plan. And what's most interesting, I think, in this whole passage is the relationship between all of these people mentioned. Again, you have the scribes, so those would be the lawyers. These are the ones who uh, write the doctrine for the religious system. You have the chief priests, of course, those are the higher-ups who work in the temple, and they offer the sacrifices, and they hold the time of prayer and all the rest. You have the Pharisees who run the local synagogues. They are the leaders of the people on that level. And we see this trio together often. This is not surprising so far. 
What's most surprising is this fourth group who Mark and Matthew mention, and that is this group called the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were the politicians in the land. They were not interested in the religious workings of the nation. Their main focus, as their name betrays, was that they were supporters of King Herod Antipas. Antipas was this puppet ruler that was appointed by Rome to sort of be a figure over the people. These were men who were theologically liberal. They loosely held to the scriptures as God's word, but they were far more interested in the Jews keeping good terms with the Romans. And so they would cater to the Romans as much as they could. So they had an authority in the land, but it was more political in nature. We might think of them as a political party. By contrast, the Pharisees were theologically conservative. They were national, nationalistic, meaning they had a high view of Israel, but it was messianic in their future hopes. So the Herodians were trying to make changes with the nation through political means, and the Pharisees were staunchly messianic, and they were hoping that the, mess, the, the Messiah would come someday and he would do away with the Romans altogether. The Herodians wanted to conform to the Romans. The Pharisees wanted to resist the Romans. So because of this contrast, you have Pharisees and scribes and high priests who wanted nothing to do with the Herodians. They would not be seen with them, and they certainly would not be working together. And you have this interesting cohesion here of opposites working together for a common cause. There's an ancient proverb that says, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what you have here. They are working together, and possibly the only thing they agree about in any category of the nation is that Jesus must be destroyed. The Herodians are interested in maintaining political power. The Pharisees and the other groups in maintaining religious power. And Jesus becomes a threat to both of them, so they are working together to destroy a common foe. So they plot, and they plan, and they are deliberating, and they think they have the perfect way to set a trap for this teacher. A question in the presence of the people. It's the kind of question that is an either-or. It's a faulty dilemma. The plan is to pin Jesus in a corner and to trap him in his own words in the presence of all. And here is their question. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Verse 
The Roman Empire ruled 20% or more of the known world at the time. They ruled regions of Europe and Africa and Asia. And they conquered nation after nation. And there was no greater power in the ancient world than the Roman Empire. But maintaining such a large area of land and having such a large populace of people to govern requires lots of money. And so to keep this whole thing running required lots of taxation. In fact, if you remember at Jesus' birth, why did Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem in the first place? Because there was a census and the census was to ensure that everyone was paying their taxes. The Romans required taxes for the road. There were taxes for their various social services available to the citizens of their empire. There were taxes for running the government. And of course, there was taxes for keeping this whole military machinery going. And the Jews despised their system of taxes. Now, why were they so opposed? There were two reasons. The first is that they were a conquered nation, and here the Jews were paying taxes to support their oppressors. So they were fundamentally opposed to their giving of money to the people who were keeping them from being a sovereign nation. Yes, it's true, Rome gave them some area of self-governing. They had lots of things they were allowed to do religiously, but they were also prevented from full sovereignty, and so the Jews were embittered about that. But secondly, they despised the taxes because the Romans put an image of Caesar on the coins, and the Jews saw that as a violation of the second commandment concerning graven images. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that the Jews try to maintain their own monetary system with all of its denominations. And so you see the shekels. The Jews will deal with each other with shekels and various other coins. But when dealing with Rome, Rome didn't want their shekels. Rome wanted them to pay their taxes in Roman currency. And so here you have this picture of Caesar on the the coins which to them was idolatry. And oftentimes the coin would have some kind of inscription about Caesar being Lord. In fact, when Jesus was born at the time of Caesar Augustus, it said on the coin that Augustus Caesar was the Son of God. So in the eyes of the Jews, they're going around with little idols in their pockets. So the religious leaders and the Jews, generally speaking, despise the Roman taxation system. And here they are with the perfect hot-button topic to trap Jesus. Here they come with this faulty dilemma, thinking there's no way he's going to get out of this one. And so they ask, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Two and only two options. Yes or no. 
If he says, yes, it's lawful to give tribute to Caesar, he's going to turn the Jews against him because they oppose taxation. He's going to lose all of his popularity because generally speaking, the people saw that as a great evil. And so all the influence Jesus has among the people would collapse if he says, yes, it is lawful to give taxes to Caesar. That was one subject the people were almost unified in. How could any religious leader with conviction actually support the idea that we should give our money to the Romans, who not only oppress us as a people, but are blasphemous, idolatrous Gentiles? It's guaranteed to put Jesus in such a bad light with such general disapproval that they would no longer stand by him. Okay, so that's one horn of the dilemma. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful to give taxes to Caesar, then the Herodians could rush in and arrest him for publicly denouncing Rome's authority. Rome requires the tax, taxes from the people. Here's this religious leader publicly saying it's not lawful for you to give taxes to Rome and they could rush in and they could bring them before the Romans and that's all they needed. You see, the Jews knew there was one main concern that the Roman Empire always had and that was insurrection. They were concerned with all of these nations that they conquered, with all of these people who are self-governed that they have oversight over, that there would be an insurrection that takes place that becomes a threat to their empire. And so whenever there was any hint of insurrection, they would stomp it out very quickly and very decisively. Surely you remember Barabbas the one who was appointed to die on a Roman cross on a certain day, the one who was brought forth as a uh, choice for the people, they were going to have Barabbas set free, they were going to have Jesus set free, that Barabbas. Why was Barabbas going to be crucified that day? The Gospels tell us, for murder and for insurrection. So, Rome's... Rome did not mess around when it came to insurrection. If you have any kind of public figure telling people to turn against the Romans, they would go and execute that person swiftly. <clears throat> so this is the trap. Jesus says, yes, you must pay the taxes. He will lose all of the crowds and the people will turn away. If he says, no, you must not pay the tax." The religious and secular authorities have enough evidence to bring him before Pilate and he will surely be condemned. Gotcha. Checkmate. This is the perfect setup. The faulty dilemma. What could he possibly say or do to get out of this one? The people are gathered. The trap is set. How will he respond? Which brings us to our third point, the implosion. 
the religious leader's intent, their implementation, and thirdly, their implosion. Verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Now, in the first place, notice that Jesus knew exactly what was going on. They thought themselves to be so cunning. Maybe they even thought they were acting in the wisdom of Solomon. But behold, one who is greater than Solomon is here. Jesus turns their faulty dilemma around and answers in such a way as to not only speak plainly and truthfully about the reality of human governments and taxation, but also puts the greater emphasis on our responsibility to give to God what is God's. In other words, I don't think this is equivalent here. You give to Caesar, and you give to God, and those things are on the same platform. I think there's some intent here that Jesus is describing, and that is you give to Caesar what belongs to him, which is a coin, but you give to God what belongs to him, which is what? Your very life. Isn't that... Everything that Jesus has taught for three and a half years in His public ministry, that we are to give our very lives to God? You say, where do you get that from? Consider what Jesus implies here. Jesus says that Caesar gets his due because of that which bears his image, right? He, 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 he asks for... An object lesson, an illustration. He says, hand me a coin. He holds up the coin. Whose image is this? Well, it's Caesar's image. So Caesar gets his due. If that's Caesar's image, you give that back to Caesar. In fact, ancient coins were understood to be the property of the person whose picture and inscription were on them. So Jesus says here, who could object to Caesar receiving back what is his? It's got his face on it, you give it back to him. That's his image, it's his. But here's the catch, God gets his due but based on what his image bears, or those who bear his image, I should say. Now, what bears the image of God? Do we have some kind of Christian currency? Is Jesus making a comparison to the Roman coins and the Jewish coins? Nope, they didn't have any image on them. Where is God's image to be found? 
And here's what I think is the implicit teaching here is, Scripture says that we are the image bearers of God. And we are to give to God not a coin that is His in return, not a tithe, not some kind of monetary requirement, but our very lives. And so the comparison becomes from this small issue of taxation and giving a Roman denarius back to Caesar to the one who bears the image of God who is to give back to God what? That which bears His image. The very person, the very life. And so because we bear the image of God, Jesus turns this trap into a wonderful picture for the audience, for His disciples, for those who are hearing of our obligation to our Creator. Namely this, we bear His image and because of that we owe it all to Him. If a denarius belongs to Caesar because it has his image on the coin and you're giving it back to him, guess what? Those who bear God's image are to give that back to him also. So Jesus gets out of this one by answering in this way. He does not offend the crowds by applauding Roman taxation. That was one horn of the dilemma. Nor does he ensnare himself by speaking against the Roman state. That was the other. And so this trap that was set for Jesus just imploded. And we see their response. Not only are the people stunned by the answer, but so are these men who were sent in to set the trap. Verse 26. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch Him in what He said, but marveling at His answer, they became silent. You don't present a logical fallacy to the author of logic. Bad, bad idea. So, did they learn their lesson? Did they just surrender and decide they're not going to pursue this any longer? Nope. In fact, the very next passage we're going to see next time, they come to him with more questions. Not to gain understanding, but to trap him again. But as we close, let me just put this question out for you since we are talking about being image bearers of God, and the question is quite simple and straightforward. Do you give to God what is God's? Do you give to God what is God's? Now, I'm sure there are some teachers out there that twist this and try to make it about tithing. And, you know, you pay your taxes and you pay 30%. How much are you giving to God? But it's so much bigger than that. It's not about giving money. Part of it, yeah, of course, you're supposed to give everything. 
You're supposed to give your time. You're supposed to give your talent. You're supposed to give your treasure. Yes, there's a financial aspect to it, I suppose. But it's all part of a surrendered life. And so I ask you this afternoon, something to set your mind on for the week to come. Do you give back to God what belongs to Him? Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, all of our strength, all of our pursuits, all of this time we have on earth, it's to be all for You. And what a small price to pay in light of an eternity of joy that You have promised for those who are in Jesus. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by Your mercy have You saved us. And yet, the relationship that comes from that gift is a life surrendered to God. Oh, Father, may we be a people, image bearers of the very invisible God who give back to God all that is His due. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.